Welcome to Recogs, the show where we learn how the world's best business operators build consumer brands from sourcing to selling. Brought to you by Manufactured. Manufactured is an online platform that helps brands manufacture, finance, and distribute inventory across 20 industries and 25 countries. Our goal is to de-risk global manufacturing, help brands manufacture advanced inventory, and help manage their supply chain from a single vantage point, from one dashboard. If you're interested in learning more, check out manufactured.com. Our guest today is Tommy Tinkinoff, co-founder of Fresh Vintage Farms. Fresh Vintage Farms is an agricultural food products company that makes premium cold-pressed artisan oils from locally sourced tree nuts, all grown in the Central Valley of California. Their products include walnut oils and almond oils that can be used on salads, baking, marinades, and cooking. We discuss his career working in commodities, why he and his family decided to start a brand focused on these products, and what makes almond oil a slightly different business operation compared to olive oil. And as well as his criteria when choosing manufacturing partners and his approach to creating a new market that's dominated by olive, canola, and vegetable oils. Without further ado, here's Tommy. Tommy, thanks so much for joining me here today. How are you? Dude, I'm fantastic, Mike. Thank you so much for having me on. I've been a big fan of uh, Consumer VC and Recogs for a long time, so this is a little bit of a dream come true. Tommy, thanks so much for for listening. Thanks so much for your support. Um, really, really, really means a lot. Um, and I know that we've obviously been like kind of um, DMing each other over the past couple of years, and it's finally now great to finally like meet you. Um, not quite in person, but still, but still properly, which is great. Yep, sounds good. Same same sentiment on this side, buddy. So so I know you're in the commodities business for a long time, but what what attracted you to start your own brand and start Fresh Vintage Farms? So I, I've always had an inkling to start some kind of a consumer facing uh, product brand, what have you. And so I was just waiting for an opportunity to jump in at the right time with the right product. Um, and so as a part of my commodity business, we were involved in a project where we were extracting oil through a cold press. And so uh, we were actually looking after the protein source, but I realized the byproduct of that or the, the co-product, if you may, was a very high quality oil, both almond and walnut, that wasn't out in the market. So I, it was this little aha moment of like, okay, great. I can be a differentiated product in a segment that I believe is ripe for growth over the next few years. Um, you know, almonds and walnuts flavored butter, milk, or otherwise has been highly commoditized and they're big barriers to entry from a financial standpoint, um, and inventory and, and just getting into cold boxes from milk side and things like that. So I said, you know what, this is a great opportunity. We were using the product in our house, in our kitchen ourselves. We had sampled it before we came to market with professional chefs, uh, you know, some influencers and said, wow, this is neat. I've never seen a product like this before. So it was, it was born out of a desire that I had innately had for years and years, but then also opportunistically as well. Can you share a little bit some light about what actually makes a product like differentiated in New York and, and something, uh, and something that actually you kind of never came across before? Yeah. So, so in our commodity business, we've sold bulk truckloads of almonds and walnuts, like 44,000 pounds, you know, into the oil space. But what they're doing is they're expeller pressing at 500 degrees and then generally refining, refining, refining all the way down and, and selling it as a cosmetic oil primarily. Uh, and, that, and that is food grade product. It can be used, but we 
are making the more of equivalent of an extra virgin olive oil. So we're using, you know, fresh edible almonds and walnuts and making a higher quality, a high quality uh, product ingredient. So it has what we refer to as the three pillars, flavor, aroma, and nutrition. So it's, it's differentiated and you won't see anything on the shelves like what we have uh, yet. I'm sure with our success will come, uh, you know, other competitors, which, Hey, rising tides raise all ships. So, you know, we'll, we'll welcome it when the time does come, but yeah, we, uh, we were really excited to, to get to market. I had to check myself a couple of times and make sure we had a, you know, at least a minimum viable product to, to go to market with, but, uh, we did achieve that. How also did your folks kind of like flavor profile? Obviously this is, um, almond and Walmart, um, oils. I was about to say olive oil, but it's a substitute for olive oil. how did you think about, um, maybe what the reception would be like, because it, I'd imagine it, t- it, 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 it tastes like different to olive oil. Um, obviously it's not made by olive oil and, and if people would actually be, you know, recipient of almond and, and walnut flavors. Yeah. So it's, we, we don't in our marketing and our messaging and talking to any consumers, we like olive oil. We like avocado oil. What we believe is this is a differentiated, you know, both ingredient flavor and nutrient profile in that people need in their pantry and in their culinary arsenal. So, you know, from a nutrient profile, it complements those other oils I just mentioned, but also in a flavor profile, it's very versatile. Um, the almond oil is more subtle. There's a, a light nutty flavor, but then the walnut oil is a little bit more robust flavor profile. Um, we use them in contrast. Like for instance, if I want flavor out of the oil on a, a fish or a salad or some kind of a vinaigrette, I use the walnut. Uh, the almond has a higher smoke point. So you could sear vegetables, chicken, fish, but it's also got a lighter flavor. If you don't want, you know, the advanced oil flavor out of uh, your cooking item, that's the best way, you know, to utilize those back and forth. So, you know, we, we see the oil category as ripe for expansion. Um, You know, I've had several uh, conversations with buyers retail saying like, yeah, the generation that used to use Crisco and just these highly, highly refined seed oils and canolas you know, that generation is dying off, uh, both from an age standpoint and a health and nutrition standpoint. Um, so, you know, I think consumers are apt to try other oils and we're, we are seeing successes in that. I mean, you, what we've seen avocado oil do over the last 10, 12 years was also another aha moment for us too. It's like, you're never, you're never going to dethrone olive oil. Olive oil is known. It's historical. It truly is a great product. Um, at Expo last year, I, I was shocked at how many people would stop by because we offered both, you know, a, a flavor test of our products in a shot glass, essentially, you know, a little like a sip, sip and go. And then on top of that, we would have dipping. But most consumers, people that would just stop by the booth would take a shot. And we heard so often people say, oh, I take an olive oil shot every morning for health. And it's like good feedback. Wow. Thank you. Yeah, it's like you know, and I hear that in all walks of life, all age groups, demographics. It's like, okay, cool, something I didn't you know necessarily have as a usage case for for our product, but um, yeah, with with the nutrient uh, dense oils, which olive oil, I'll give some avocados, not all that title, but our, our almond walnut, like it, it does pencil into a healthy diet and a nutrient profile and uh, a daily routine. Yeah, no, that makes that makes a lot of sense in terms of. Um, consumer appetite, being open to try, you know, do uh, different oils and maybe not, you know, kind of go move away from from veg- the vegetable oils, the canola oils, and 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 those types of things, um, and um, look to obviously kind of o- olive oil um, is um, is you know of of a fantastic oil and maybe like 
like the king in that in 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 that um aspect in that what the consumer you know maybe um navigates to or or has or, or has familiarity with when it comes to the cooking and and um and and consuming uh that's cool how how did you how did you also think about um getting the right um like formulation and and testing out the product where did you do um taste testers i'd imagine you have like a pretty robust network when it comes to, and from from your commodity business that you know maybe people that um that be apt maybe to try something like this but what was your kind of process in terms of figuring out what the right um uh, uh what the right final product would be yeah i mean so we we did test i mean similar to like a coffee bean you can have a light medium or a dark roast it's very similar with with almonds and walnuts and so Consumers don't, I mean, it's, I'm an almond, I'm not going to say pat myself on the back and say expert, but very few people would know that A, there's about 50 varieties of almonds grown in California, which makes a big different flavor profile. But in general, an almond is about 48% oil. So if you slice an almond in half from a, a content standpoint, you're going to have pretty much 50% of it is protein. And then the other 50% is oil. Uh, walnuts are even higher than that. So they're healthy oils, they're healthy fats, but we did experiment with like a light roast, a raw almond, a medium, and then a dark roast. And the, we are coming, we have a dark roasted oil that we're going to be uh, releasing later this year. And then also a flavored oil. I'll tease it for people that like garlic. You're going to love this almond oil. Um, so yeah, we, we did different flavored profiles. We have a couple of professional chefs in our area that are family friends of mine and just were super supportive and helpful. We did some sommelier testing. And actually one of the, uh, the members of that misfits market panel I spoke to earlier, um, she was an olive oil sommelier. And so we've run across a couple of those to have their input as well. So, you know, it's a lot about seeing how it functions in food and also for us wanting, contrasting flavor profiles in our first two products, the almond and the walnut oil. And so as we expand our SKU set uh, horizontally, we do anticipate adding other flavor profiles and different usage cases and things of that nature. But it's like, okay, let's, let's get what we thought and some of our, you know, so quote unquote focus groups, we're going to appreciate the most and go out with that. We didn't want to blow people away with, uh, you know, an over robust flavor profile. We wanted to let the more the natural product speak for itself and then get more niche and specialized as we grow the company. Yeah. And it seems like there's a lot of opportunity to go deep with what, if you have 50 variations of almonds, right? Um, there's a lot of opportunity to make, to make different types of products and also, um, and what have you. When you first launched with almond can you describe a little bit about that process in terms of narrowing down the the actual like one the the actual one type of almond that you actually wanted to focus on and and the reason why? Yeah, so we we had tested it around like I said, we we had a bunch of different people trial it. We actually ended up using a blended variety because the 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 difference, yeah, we it's for and I'll tell you why. So I alluded earlier that we use upcycled almonds, meaning we use chip scratch broken almonds that aren't necessarily always entered into the food chain. They're not, they're super fine. They taste great. They're often made into an almond butter or an almond paste for milk, but there's still a certain amount of discarded almonds. So as opposed to going variety specific, we went and said, you know what, if we can make upcycled or use upcycled almonds that might not make in the food chain, 
uh, and kind of have a blended, you know, variety across it. We think we're going to a be able to, you know, scale the most using those, and also from an environmental sustainability aspect, be able to do the most good in the realm of food waste. So we did test a bunch of varieties. I could get in the weeds about my favorite variety versus, you know, my wife or my business partner's favorite variety. That's all. That's that flavor, that Coca-Cola, Pepsi argument, you know, in some regards. Um, but yeah, we we ended up testing a bunch and then just came out with a blended uh, blended oil that. Um, allows us to source ingredients the best for the pressing, but also uh, allows us to you know, maximize food chain support, which we believe in wholeheartedly. So the fact that you were kind of using um, almonds that were upcycled or almonds that had chips in it that didn't actually look like pristine, perfect almonds, does that make your cogs uh, cheaper with, with using those types of almonds versus, versus non-upcycled almonds? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it has a, I would say from a raw number standpoint, it increases our cogs on the inputs material by about 30%. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I, I've been in the business long enough that I'm able to source, there's about a hundred almond packers up and down the state. And so we can source uh, from, you know, several packers throughout the year too, which also means that we don't have to press you know, all at harvest time in September and be using that oil in the following, you know, June when the freshness might not be there. We can pick as we go upcycled almonds that have been cold stored and then we have the freshest ingredient throughout the year too. So it maximizes, you know, our cogs and our product quality simultaneously. Got it. And how how did you approach in terms of which which manufacturers to choose from? Because um I mean I know that you know probably every manufacturer there is um in in california and probably you know um any manufacturer that's maybe in the almond and in in walnut spaces but how did you determine which which ones you wanted to partner with so as a part of my other business for the last 15 years i've been in just about every almond facility up and down the state there's some in australia and vietnam there are at least factories that i've been privy to as well so it did really give me the chance to pick and choose from from the best producers, the best handlers of almonds from a food safety standpoint, from a storage standpoint and, and product quality. There is, uh, there's a lot of great packers in California. They do a fantastic job. California produces roughly 85 to 90% of the world's almonds. And so, yeah, so it's, it's a heavily leveraged uh, production here in our Valley. Uh, shout out to the sustainability efforts. Like I can't do this podcast without saying how well the almond industry um, has done the last 15 to 20 years for promoting sustainability within their farming and production quality. So, um, but yeah, just looking at what producer is going to be producing the most sustainable, most progressive in the way of farming, bee health, water conservation, and then also going to the, the, the manufacturers and the packers, what they're doing internally and what products I've seen. So it was almost like I got a kind of an insight view for the last 15 years to be able to uh, have my pick and choice of what packers and handlers I want to deal with. And like, And I understand a little bit about your kind of diligence process in terms of also aligning your values to who you want to see from manufacturers. But like, and I guess that since you've been in this business for um, a long time that you just know which ones maybe you want to go to or which ones you're not, but like, is there almost like a due diligence process that you have when it comes to actually picking the right manufacturers for, uh, that you wanted for fresh vintage farms or, um, and, and like overall, like what, what makes like a production facility or, or a farm maybe interesting to you that you wanted them to partner with the owner? 
You know, so from a vertical integration standpoint, all, the almond industry structure that you have the farming operations, which is, you know, a, a segment that's either family owned, commercially grown, um, and they have different food safety programs on the farm. The manufacturers, by conjunction, have their own specific profile. So for us, it really needed to align on both of those fronts. And then in the due diligence process, I mean, doing plant tours, understanding where they were on an SQF, a BRC, what audit program they line up with, because there are certain retailers for us that want to see those those audit, that traceability level as well. And as we grow as a brand, um, those are becoming more and more important to our retail partners, to our distribution partners, you know, KHE, UNFI, things of that nature, you know, the filling out distributor forms. They ask, um, you know, about food safety all the time, which rightfully so they should. So we really need to make sure that all along the line of our sourcing ingredients that we are uh, able to check those boxes, both from our internal controls, but also what retailers and uh, other partners, brands that we might be working with down the road, what they're all going to align with. So we, we really try to do our best there. I'll be honest, it's always a moving target, which I think is a good thing. We're always trying to do better and look for the next step, ask why, why we can't do this. Hey, can we do this better? Um, there's certain types, for example, types of fumigation that you could do. Some is a steam or a pasteurization method that's like, okay, well, if we want to eliminate microtoxins or plastics and things like that, what can we be doing? What are you doing as a plant and a manufacturer to be able to alleviate those concerns and, and turn out a, a great product? I really appreciate that. You know, we, we had on previously a olive oil company, um, Costarina, um, mm -hmm. and uh, they they import um, um, olives and produce olives um, uh, from Greece. And um, what it what it seemed like was it's tricky because there's obviously only one season for uh, uh, for olives that grow. So you really have to in your kind of demand forecasting and your in your or your sales forecasting, um, you have to make sure that you're producing enough obviously for the next of the year. And it's and I remember you mentioned something previously how you're able to, even though almond season is September, um, you're able to as well um, maybe mitigate risk somehow and um, and maybe I don't know if that's extending the shelf life of the of the almonds or be able to kind of go back but talk a little bit about what the actual cycle is on the manufacturing side and how and um, and how you have to kind of forecast sales yeah so I'll, I'll explain the difference between our oil and olive oil they're actually extra virgin. So extra virgin, the term quote extra means harvested and pressed within 24 hours. And so from a quality standpoint, olive oil needs to be done that or it'll start to go rancid. It'll start to the flavor will get pungent, things of that nature. Almonds, by contrast, don't need to be pressed within 24 hours because it's not a high moisture item and they're not going to go sour. Yeah. So so the big differentiator there is we don't have to press it you know, at within 24 hours of harvest. And the way we farm and harvest, it's not really possible to do that anyways. Luckily, it's not required. You wouldn't need to. We don't We don't go sour. Um, we, we follow pretty much two barometers of freshness, peroxide value and free fatty acid. So to, throughout the course of the year, as we source new ingredients and new you know, almonds for our pressing, upstream of buying those almonds and then pressing them, we test for those two metrics. So luckily we don't have that forecasting. I did listen to that episode and I could empathize with her. I'm going, man, that would really be tough for us to forecast like, A, we don't want dead stock, and but B, we want to keep selling throughout the year. I mean, it's a good problem to sell out, but it, you know, if you do that six, eight months into your 12 month cycle, like, 
you know, you're going to be twiddling your thumbs and scratching your head for a couple months with that, uh, with customers that are fiending for your product, which again, I know some, some consumers, uh, it almost heightens their uh, desire for something if they can't get it. But I always like to be in stock as opposed to out, out of stock. So to your question, yeah, we source throughout the year and we do test upstream of those, uh, of those purchases so that we're ensure we're getting a fresh product, which it's, it's a, uh, not a very difficult cycle. And we've been doing that for 15 years, testing almonds for quality. So we, we know how to do it. Awesome. There's, I definitely there's something there with, uh, with, 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 with some of the differences between almonds and, uh, and, and olives. Um, talk to me a little bit about distribution. So you obviously on the manufacturing side, you knew and understand this, this industry extremely, extremely well. Um, on the distribution side, what was your first sales channel? How did you, did you think first of all, going D to C, did you, um, were thinking kind of farmers markets or trying to get into retail? What was, what was kind of the, the avenue for you all? So, so being green in the space, like I said, coming from a bulk commodity background, um, I, I used just the, the old hustler mentality. I would throw 10 cases in the back of the truck, go to different farm stands, like in up and down the Northern California Valley, we have fantastic produce, which means we have great produce stands and things of that nature. Um, I, so I, I went and I would hustle at those and I would get, you get outlets for, you know, uh, small, small volumes. Like they would take a case or two at a time, but Hey, I was on sale at places. I went through to some independents, um, that were very helpful, very kind on taking us on cause we were a, a local item. Um, so we, we started that way. I knew at some point I would want to go into distribution. Currently we are on distribution with Kahee and UNFI, but I needed retailers, which meant I knew commits, um, Another founder at Expo came by and it's like, hold on, Tommy, I don't get this because like to be in distribution, you have to be in retail, but in a retail, you have to be in distribution. So I go, how do you do that? I'm like, you got to work your butt off at the end of the day and just kind of get, get simultaneous commitments out of it. Uh, but but we did go just the route of just hustling hard in the early days. We got some retailers to take us on a direct store distribution. Um, we had this big plan because we launched, you know, softly launched or limited in, in 2020, uh, right in March. And it's like, man, we had we had ideas to do, you know, taste testings and work with realer, uh, retailers. And obviously, you know, that that put a big halt to us. So we kind of shifted our focus to making sure we establish ourselves locally. We did do some work on Amazon and we were going, you know, direct consumers are going to be a great uh, rollout for us. And then iOS 14 dropped, like literally a month after we started like AB testing all ads, my guy calls me. He's like, Hey, remember that new rollout? I'm like, yeah. He's like, it kind of put a raging halt to everything we were trying to learn. Right. And me, I self fund the business. Uh, we might uh, be raising later this year as a side note, but um, yeah, it's like, I didn't have the war chest to go out and be like, let's just push through the algorithm and just, you know, throw money at it to, you know, just advertise and, and try to learn who our consumers were. So we got a little crafty. We got a little bit uh, more hustle in our game, but yeah. So we, we were calculated on how we spend our dollars. We still very much are today, but it, uh, we had a couple curveballs through in between COVID and iOS 14 that uh, just put the early plans into a little bit of a pivot mode, so to speak. Yeah, I mean it's a double whammy there, right? Because you're 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 thinking, okay, let's go out and retail, and then of course, and and do trial and and testings in retail, and then of course you can't. Um, okay, then let's pivot and let's in, and, and let's go online, and then you start going online and really kind of dig deep into in, into ads and and uh, and find out, you know your your ideal customer profile or, or or what have you and then um you get hit with the ios you know 
14.5 update. And so, um, uh, and so that's, I mean, that's, that's very challenging. I mean, also too, like, I mean, around that time or, or, or maybe it was a little bit after, but like you also then have like the, the, um, supply chain, um, uh, the global supply chain crisis. Were you overall, um, fairly insulated by the global supply chain crisis just because you were producing manufacturing in California, you wouldn't have any manufacturing uh, facilities in like um, overseas or in a different country. Um, and you were still, you know, maybe, um, um, uh, shipping or locally, if you were getting POs in, um, um, or like in, I'd imagine like California or what have you, um, or, or, or was that also, or, or, or were you being hit like pretty hard on that as well? So, you know, a couple of our, I mean, we source all of our almonds here in California. So that wasn't an issue for us, but two of our cogs are glass, uh, which was coming from Europe at the time. And, and then also corks that, you know, generally corks are from Spain and Portugal. Right. And so luckily, you know, we had good partners on that side, but it did, uh, it did put some concern on us. We bought a little bit of extra inventory on glass and my, my philosophy starting is always, I always live in the minimum order quantity and for for this reason alone I don't want to end up with inventory that I can't sell or because we're pivoting right and it's like okay I looked at cogs early and I go man I'd love if I buy 10,000 units of these then I'm going to you know save 25% I go well you know in an early stage company we might find that okay this product is a perfect match for our consumer you know and for example oh we bought 10,000 units let's pivot at 2500 units well I should have just bought 2,500 units out of the get-go at, albeit a higher price, but I know I'm going to get through all that inventory before having to switch over to, uh, you know, a different iteration, whether it's cork size, a screw top. I mean, cause we are in a glass bottle with a wooden cork. So it, it did, does present it challenges on, you know, sourcing, but, um, COVID did provide its challenges. My, uh, director of ops did a great job of navigating that, making sure that we were buying, at calculated tactical times buying order quantities that we were very you know confident in um you know our you know cogs could have been a lot better at the beginning but i was really taking a more of a long-term view of hey like if this is going to be a profitable business down the road that's important i'm not just trying to you know buy yeah yeah it's like it, it locked it would have locked up a lot of cash for us warehouse space what have you um, I won't say any names, but at Expo, I was approached by another founder who was in a similar um, bottle to us, and they had four containers of extra glass that he offered to me um, just because, you know, somebody had bought way too much and they were doing a product pivot. And so it's like, I have a great relationship with the guy. We ended up um, A, helping him and B, helping us that we bought some of his inventory that he had, you know, purchased. So it helped us, helped him. So it was a nice little symbiotic relationship, but uh, we try our best to avoid you know, dead stock, dead inventory or otherwise, because uh, as we grow, I, I don't want those kinds of hiccups. That makes a lot of sense. Kind of focusing, even if you get like, even if you get like, like, like the, um, um, the, the big discounts buying in bulk or buying what have you, you have to, I mean, on one hand, like maybe it makes sense for you, but the other, uh, on the other hand, you know, there, there's also then storage fees associated with that. Um, and, and everything like that, unless you really do blow in that blow it out of the park, and you're able to, you know, sell, um, but um, a lot more than than what you're forecasting, um, and so um, definitely, definitely makes sense in terms of being maybe a bit more conservative and making sure that you don't have uh, uh, dead stock issues, and um, and also, I mean, also just not paying bills on um, on on storage fees. So it might 
might balance itself out. Obviously, depends on the math. But um, uh, uh, if you were to buy in bulk and then you also have um, a, a storage fees on top of it, then 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 that might be might not actually be worth it either, just because of of all the storage storage fees that that's associated with it. Yeah, I mean, it's it also is a kind of interesting. I feel like in these past couple of years, I've I've when I've talked to brands, especially like e-commerce, like focused brands. I know that obviously, um, uh, you you have a pretty big um, retail business, but for e-commerce focused brands, because um, they've because of the the global supply chain crisis, um, what you might find is um, they've um, really kind of. Uh, double down on inventory and maybe have you know in, enough inventory for nine months a year out um which is a, a hell of a lot of inventory to order um of of finished goods and then it, and and these by the way might be are only selling online and then you know the e-commerce penetration level comes down so the demand maybe isn't there nearly what it what they thought it would be or, or would be um since people are now going back in stores and and um and the um, e-commerce penetration is at you know prior uh, COVID nineteen levels, so um, so then they're just sitting on inventory that they bought all uh, bought all of because you know and now of course like prices have kind of come back down or or are or or are you know r- relatively stabilized I believe um, when it comes to shipping at least, um, and so that's a really tough tough position to be in. Um, that's really tough, yeah. Yeah, I think it's getting different between company to company, product to product. Like you had a, a Thai manufacturer founder, I forget his name that I listened to the podcast uh, a couple of days ago. And, you know, him, he doesn't have any issues of dead stock because ties don't go bad. You know, for us as a food item, you know, it's, it, it'd be difficult to say, ah, oh, we want to really leverage out what we're going to do further. Because like, yeah, you know, our product you know, does, does deteriorate over time as any food item does. Right. So we try to be calculated on that through COVID. We really tried to make sure we had, um, uh, good conversations with our supplier base, you know? And so we actually do all of our own bottling ourselves. I, I didn't mention that earlier, but that's, that's a part that we plucked off and we made that determination early in starting the brand. I had multiple conversations with olive oil producers and manufacturers that were super helpful, very kind and, and supportive, but they could not co-pack for us. The majority of them because their food safety plan didn't included no nut allergens. Right. And I, and I, and I did find eventually some that I could work with, but um, one and I, I referenced earlier minimum order quantities. If I bought a used bottling line from an olive oil company, so it cost me twenty five percent of what a new bottling line would would go would cost me. So that was somewhat helpful there. And then we do pack ourselves, which we can do limited runs. We can you know pr- press and bottle as needed, so that inventory was more on the just in time system. Um, and so and also down the road. You know, if there's any white label opportunities, we've we've been approached by some people, uh, no partners that we really thought were ideal for us, especially in growing our products. I mean, consumers are not so familiar with almonds and walnuts on an oil standpoint. You know, we referenced earlier, like, okay, how did we get this out there? Well, we did farmers markets, we did farm stands. The first question is almond oil. What do I use it for? You know, it's like people think of almond oil as a cosmetic, you know, a skincare item, which historically it, it has been, but that's because they're using highly refined, you know, expeller pressed oils that are, they're still not a bad product, but nobody's really used much of it as a food item. So consumers aren't very familiar with it. We see that as, as both a hurdle, but also an opportunity. So we could educate customers, um, show them, you know, this quality product, but also be the brand first mover to market that has this product out there so that hopefully, you know, down the road, we're the, 
you know, when people think nut oils, almond, walnut, what have you, that we're top of mind and we're, you know, the, the leader in the category as well. So, you know, these things, these thoughts all tie into each other as far as like why we made the decision to bottle ourselves, why, you know, we buy materials the way we do. Um, we tried through COVID, like we had three different cork suppliers. That was a little bit of a learning lesson there because one of the cork suppliers had some really poor glue that didn't function well with either oil or our bottles. And so it's like, if you look at our Amazon reviews, like any negative review we ever get is due, uh, I'd say 90% of them is due to, uh, you know, the, the corks breaking, right? Which we're very upfront with people. It's like, hey, you know, when we were sourcing through COVID, there was also uh, a very dry period in Spain and Portugal, which is where all the corks are produced. So you had more frail and bitter corks. And I have friends in the wine industry that were sourcing corks that fought those same struggles. So, um, you know, it's like, okay, we, we went through three cork suppliers, A for quality and B to make sure that supply was going to be there. Um, same thing on the glass side. We want to make sure that we had relationships with uh, a couple of suppliers, A, so we can, you know, they were very helpful. They would teach us about the glass industry because coming from a bulk nut background, there's no glass in any of those facilities. Um, so it, it was learning lessons, interacting with uh, suppliers that were very helpful and supportive. And then uh, just we did make mistakes. I mean, we do. And like I said, we've had our hiccups with with corks breaking and things of that nature. But we were up front with customers and very proactive and, you know, making sure they had a replacement bottle, make sure we knew that we cared um, and we weren't just, you know, a, a cloak and mirror behind a bottle. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, like you're, you know, you're a young growing company, right? There's always going to be some, sometimes of hiccups. And I think that, you know, that's kind of like part of the story too, that I think, you know, um, also, you know, resonates in terms of just being in terms of, you know, people wanting to, uh, wanting to support, uh, someone that's doing something innovative and doing something new and Hey, there actually might be a couple hiccups on the product, but like, that's, that's part of the process, right? We put an insert into our in our Amazon shipments. It's like, hey, this is a you know picture of me and my wife and our family, right? And, you know, tug on some heartstrings a little bit there, right? We'll, we'll we'll bang any drum we can, but the insert says like, hey, we hope you love our product. If there's anything at all wrong with it, like please reach out, send an email to this address, and we will make it right. We're not trying to circumvent Amazon's system because they have very tight control on that. We're not trying to go direct consumer, you know, pluck them off the Amazon platform. But we wanted to make sure that as opposed to leaving a negative review. They would reach out to us. We would make it right by sending a replacement bottle if, if there was any cork breakage or any leakage um, and be able to support, you know, somebody that instead would leave a one or a two star rating to go on like five stars. Like, hey, these guys are great. I had a problem. They sent a replacement bottle for us. I do love interacting with customers, you know, whether it's on the, the flavor, nutrient, quality profile or just on, you know, usage, whatever. And so it's like I... I really, I find myself having long conversations for somebody via email or otherwise that, that reaches out about our products because that's, I'm truly passionate about it. It makes us, makes my day when I can talk to customers. I'll go to retail stores and uh, take, we have these one ounce sample packs, which have proved very, uh, very useful too, made by a company called Zila Pack and uh, Zella Pack Mix. And uh, so I'll, I'll go into the produce section of the oil aisle and give out 50 or 100 of those throughout the course of an hour, just interact with people. And I, I truly enjoy that. So, um, the bigger we get, the harder it is to do things like that. Um, but you know, we still try to carve out time, interact with people and get their feedback. No, I love that. That's great. That's really, really great. Um, on my other podcast, I remember talking to Paul Vogue about that, uh, quite a bit. Um, and like, and like merchandising and also building relationships with, you know, the retailers and what have you, and just always trying to like lend like a, uh, a helpful hand to, 
um, uh, from that side in in terms of just like getting like product off, off the trucks and also you know um, and and get them on shelf and also uh, talking with customers and trying to understand like the feedback too. So there's there's we've had some cool things like at Expo uh, West we were like two rows away from the guys at Dano's seasoning which those guys are absolutely crushing the content and social media game and their their retail rise has been huge but in the world of, of demos we've been able to partner with them on a few demos and key retailers that we're both in and so they'll you know get chicken uh, raw chicken and we actually have a booth that's for sampling and cooking and so we'll have a demo company uh, cook chicken with our oil and their their uh, seasonings and a is a fantastic flavor profile but uh we're able to split the cost on that too and so it's like these demos they're not inexpensive retailers love them but you know to be able to calculate the long-term value of those and what that does for sales uptick uh it it really helps split it with another partner in kind of a a co-products industry no that's a great that's great i I need to check out danos that's how that that sounds awesome um uh sounds really cool um, I love, love, love seasoning. So I'll have to, I'll, I'll check them out. Um, uh, but clearly not enough because I haven't, cause it, because I need to, uh, cause I need to know, uh, Dan O's clearly on the inventory side. How do you think about when to use a uh, financing your inventory? How do you think about, um, I know that you're self-funded, but what, when do you, when do you think about using cash versus debt? Um, it's just about the conversion cycle for us more than anything. I mean, debt, as everybody knows, in the last year and a half has just gotten astronomical. I mean, yeah, ca- cash is still king and becoming more so every time. But but looking at different debt programs and profiles, um, it's just about thinking how long we're going to be able to go through things. I mean, that's if we're buying in smaller quantities and we're not going to have inventory just sitting in a warehouse, excuse me, that might make sense for more of a debt structure, but which is... Um, you know, it's like, I don't want to tie up too much cash in anything. And so at different inventories where we think we're going to burn through that, that product and be able to sell it quickly, we'll use, we'll use debt. Whereas, you know, I, I try to keep cash for other things like marketing, advertising, and you know, outreach and things like that. Right. I mean, you can't partner with, uh, influencers, you know, and, and, you know, promise to pay them in 90 days and things like that too. And so you know, it's like, uh, you know, like, we've had great reactions from people so i'm not complaining about the influencer side of things some of these some of these you know fees for those guys are getting through the roof but hey guys and gals but uh it's a warranted in some cases so no it's it's just a case-by-case basis we as a self-funded company don't have a war chest at our arsenal um, so we're really calculated on it we do use debt in some instances we use cash in others but it just boils down to how fast we're going to turn it over I know we talked a little bit, touched on dead stock, um, uh, and how you really are trying to. I mean, obviously, just like everyone is trying to avoid dead stock, but you're not, you know, going out and buying, you know, way more glass, for example, than you need to, um, just because you can get twenty five percent cheaper. But have you have you had any any issues so far with with dead stock or or inventory that you're unable unable to sell? And, and if so, how do you go about it? Yeah, so we have had some. I, I, I wish it was the, uh, the zero was the case, but we had dead stock due to inventory issues of, of the corks, right? And then we've also had some where in bottling and warehousing ourselves, you know, we're getting better every time at inventory controls, but every now and then it's like, hey, where was this, you know, few cases in the back? Like, okay, like, darn it. Like, we'll, we'll test the product, make sure it's still good quality. And if, you know, we have donation partners that we can work with, uh, some food pantries, some local charities that we worked with. Um, friends and family are always thrilled to get, to get free cases and tell, we tell them to just 
first. And generally, we don't we have an expiration date on our products. It's more of a best buy date. You know, we have about a two year uh, life cycle of our product. So it's like we we want to make sure that when customers get it, that they have 12 to 18 months. If we think that something's outside of that, we'll make a determination that, you know, distribute it to a food pantry or you know one of those friends and family uh giveaways we, we have some some local uh we have a lot of barbecue guys that like our product and so and i love eating barbecue so we'll go to some barbecue events and uh give give out a bunch of oil bottles and get great tri-tips and steaks and chicken kebabs or veggies in, in contrast so it's like there's a little bit of that that i enjoy as a founder networking with uh with different industries giving out free bottles and telling them hey if the court breaks we're sorry but like it's a freebie so don't go <laughs> so awesome awesome no no that's cool that's 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 uh um uh that makes a lot of sense um my final question for you tommy is what would you value more a hundred dollars of inventory this is like finished good product cogs not a hundred dollars of of retail hundred dollars of cogs or a hundred dollars cash so i'm gonna i'm gonna answer this in two ways one if it's a black and white hundred dollars of cogs or cash I'm going to take the cogs all day because I'm a salesman and I love selling my product. I love it, baby. Give me, give me a hundred dollars in cogs. I'll bring back $200. Um, but in, in the world of growing the business and, uh, and me not just slinging out of the back of a sprinter van, I want $70 in cogs and $30 in cash to be able to either have one of my sales guys pitch it or use that in one of our channels to be able to market it and push it out there. Cause at the end of the day, I don't know any business that is inventory that just sells itself. You know, it takes money to pay employees, to have distribution, to have, you know, advertisements, marketing or otherwise. So, uh, you know, if you let me split it up, Mike, I'm going to say $70 of cogs and $30 of cash or it's black and white. I'm going boots on the ground. I'm going to sell that myself. Tommy, I love, I love the response. That's, that's, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Yeah. A hundred, I totally get it. I mean, like at, as you say, if you're able to sell the inventory, $100 to COGS all day, if you have any type of margin, right? Um, which if you're not in type of margin, then probably shouldn't be, probably shouldn't be in the biz. Um, but if you have any, any type of margin, then $100 to COGS. But as you say, you need, you're going to need some cash in order, w w whether it's um, uh, to pay, you know, someone to sell your product or, or, or marketing costs. So makes sense to have a small, a, a small amount of money for the, um, in cash in order to, in, or, in order to sell that inventory. Um, cause again, like, as you say, like no inventory kind of just like self sells itself or it's very, very rare. Tommy, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Mike. That was a blast. Uh, look forward to meeting you at one of the uh, trade shows coming up one of the next year or so. And, and thank you so much for having me. Take care of that baby. And there you have it. It was terrific having Tommy on the show. Tommy, thanks again so much for coming on our podcast. And thank you also to Manufactured. Manufactured is an online platform that helps brands manufacture, finance, and distribute inventory across 20 industries and 25 countries. If you're a consumer brand owner and you want to learn more, check out manufactured.com. The link is also in the show notes. Thanks for listening.